You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm Patrick Smith. On the podcast this week, Brexit, what historians call the long view, and a look at the challenge for Dublin. I'm joined in studio by Paul Gillespie, formerly of this house, and who has written extensively on both the EU and specifically the Irish dimension of Brexit. And our foreign affairs correspondent, Rune McCormack, and from London and Brussels, by Dennis Staunton and Suzanne Lynch. First, let's put Brexit in a historical context. This is not the first time Britain has cast itself adrift from Europe. In 1534, Henry VIII, frustrated by the Pope's refusal to grant him an annulment to his marriage, decisively broke England from Rome and from Europe and established an independent church. He then confiscated the assets of the church in England. As it happened, it led to a surge in both the economy and an influx of refugee Protestants. Perhaps the analogy is not direct, but the scale of the political earthquake and its lasting impact might be. The New York Times on Monday led the paper with a story that made the case that this is a story of global significance. Paul, is this the start of another reformation? Well, it's certainly of global significance. Uh, um, uh, As to another reformation, think about the the next several centuries after the reformation. I mean, the reformation started a process, yes, of, of, of migration, of economic development, of imperial development, um, uh, in which Britain went global over the next several centuries, uh, of the scientific revolution in the 17th century, of the industrial revolution in the 18th and 19th centuries, and the the, the domination by Britain of the world in the 19th century, uh, of which this these events are in some extent the unfolding. So I would say no, there's not an exact parallelism. I don't think the world is is, is going in that direction. And the British imperial move was, of course, part of a, a wider European uh, development in world terms. Uh, the, the world now is, is very different. You have Asia, you have other parts of the world um, uh, as well uh, developing. You have the uh, position of the United States uh, with its pivot to Asia. Uh, uh, I, I, I don't think... It, it's, it's a new reformation, but don't underestimate the geoeconomic significance of Britain, nor, incidentally, it's like the population increase, even if it loses Scotland and even if it stops migration. There's a big population dynamic. Which some of the forecasts say that Britain will be larger than Germany in, two, in, in 2050. Uh, well, that's, that's an interesting one to speculate on. Uh, but I think certainly uh, uh, this is of profound geopolitical and geoeconomic importance, but it's not a new reformation. No, well, uh, that was probably a rhetorical question in the sense, but but the New York Times was saying that in in the post-1945 order imposed on the world by the United States and its allies, is that unravelling now too? It's developing, perhaps unravelling, certainly reordering. Uh, I think uh, a Britain minus Scotland could not hold its position, for example, on the Security Council. Uh, You're bound to get that kind of uh, reopening of those uh, formal power questions at at global level. And the ability of the British governing class to manage all this is, is, as we can see, just the the last few days, uh, very much in question. So there's a lot up for grabs. Now, if Brexit doesn't actually trigger or cause these huge changes, is it the expression, perhaps most strikingly so far, of the forces of disintegration uh, or relative decline that we've seen developing, particularly in the wake of the economic crisis of 2008? 
yes, I, I think it must be seen not as a piece of exceptionalism in, in Britain, but as, as part of a, a wider patterns, including obviously in Europe. Uh, the way I see it at a general systemic level, if you like, uh, it was touch and go whether they, it, it, Britain would, in fact, vote to remain or, or leave. Uh, the huge turnout uh, on the uh, on the on the leave side is very significant, and it's a mobilisation which, of course, many commentators see a parallel elsewhere around Europe and from some of the same social forces. So there, are, there, is, there is parallelism there. Whether that leads to disintegration is very, still very much an open question. In principle, uh, the remaining you know, states of uh, the European Union can unite more deeply. They can muddle through or up, as they've been doing, or they can disintegrate. Those are the three kind of uh, scenarios. Uh, and I think it's much too early to say it's going to be the third. Now, Suzanne, in the British and US media, there is a sense that this is the first stage of, of that disintegration, which is inevitable, they say, of the, of the EU. Is that how it's seen in Europe? Well, I don't think so. But in, in one sense, the very opposite. There's been a sense here, an awareness of obviously that the fact that the European Union is representing less and less of the global economy. And that's precisely the reason why most people in the European Union want to continue with the European project. They feel that it's only by working together that they can significantly challenge the other rising powers in the world, particularly in Asia. And in fact, if you look back to the foundation of the European Union itself, in many ways, the European project was born out of a kind of a Cold War context in which Europe found itself on the one hand trapped between a resurgent US on, on its west and the power of the Soviet Union on its right. And there was there was a sense that economically that, that countries had to pool their resources to, uh, to compete in terms of trade and obviously politically as well. So I think um, actually the sense that European, European countries need each other is actually one of the founding impulses that is guiding the European Union, even despite the uh, British exit. Now, perhaps that's um, perspective at, a, at what might be called an elite level. But the reality is that the forces which, which contributed to Brexit and Britain are also very much manifest in a number of other European states. Yes, obviously the British re result um, did not happen in a vacuum. There is significant uh, unrest towards the European project at a citizen level throughout the European Union. And in fact, we could see this referendum result in the context of the European Parliament elections two years ago. That was a huge wake-up call for the European Union. That, uh, and I remember at the time, a lot of it kind of dismissed the implications of this result, saying, well, uh, most people in Europe still back centre party. But at the end of the day, in a country you had Marine Le Pen's party, a very viscerally anti-EU party, topping the polls. It was a sign that the EU was in trouble, that something that something was amiss. Now, the big question is whether uh, the European Union is going to reform. Is this going to be the impetus it needs to reform? But what's going to be difficult now is for the European Union to strike a balance between uh, keeping the show on the road and kind of calmly trying to respond uh, to uh, the, the, the frustrations, if you like, that's been expressed uh, in Britain. Paul, is there a sense, though, in a lot of the commentary about potential for disintegration, uh, an underestimation, perhaps, of the, the, the strength of the political will at the heart of Europe that has driven integration so far, uh, and then just talking about further integration? I agree, and I agree with Suzanne that that, that instinct of relative weakness uh, post-war 
uh, and of needing one another in a, in a changing world, I, I think that actually reproduces itself and is still very much there. Uh, and you can, you can analyse it, if you like, objectively in terms of uh, population or economic participation or indeed military security strength and you see the same pattern. So in order to uh, maintain the influence uh, they developed in imperial times, in post-imperial times they need to stick together. And I think the big powers know that. Uh, now, that's, that's one factor. The, the second factor though is whether they're capable of mobilising the political um, uh, resources to do that uh, and the you know social uh, socio-political uh, resources uh, as well because uh, there's a big disjuncture between uh, the institutional uh, um, innovation at elite level uh, and the, the failure to bring many parts of the population along and you've got a much more contested and politicised um, field of European integration because it's penetrating more more uh, into ordinary people's lives and it's affecting the welfare systems and the social systems that people are relying on in that big long post-war period. So I, I think there's a, a really big need to reform and recast this politics and that is a colossal question really of and, capacity. And fundamentally there's a message which hasn't got to, to voters about what is Europe for that has to be redefined for this age. Yes, uh, uh, and uh, you know, that has to operate very much at elite level. It has to be, uh, they have to, uh, uh, they have to go, in my view, they have to go deeper, uh, not to the depth of a super state or uh, of the kind of, you know, of, along the lines of the United States at all, uh, but in a qualitative shift towards uh, using greater resources to complement the activities at, uh, um, at national level, in, particularly in the social domain. Now, Dennis, uh, if there's been a shock to the global system, the Brexit process, as much as the actual result, have been like an atomic bomb on British politics. I mean, the political class is in turmoil. We, are, we have a sort of sense of a rudderless drift as both Tories and Labour uh, collapse in on themselves. Even the Brexiters don't really know where we go next. Yes, and, and actually the political turmoil domestically plays into uh, the direction of the negotiations probably between Britain and the European Union. What you saw during the referendum campaign was that the Vote Leave campaign found itself dragged towards a position where they were focusing on immigration and they were moving away from the notion of uh, being integrated uh, in the European single market while being outside the European Union. What you've seen since the referendum is that a number of the leading figures in the Vote Leave campaign, including Boris Johnson, but also Daniel Hannan, the Conservative MEP, have been uh, stressing how important it is to find some kind of an arrangement where they retain access to the European Union, or the European single market, but that they have some kind of restrictions on uh, immigration. Now, uh, that is uh, some version of what's called the Norway model. Uh, within the Norway model, within the European uh, Economic Area Agreement, there probably is actually some uh, mechanism whereby you could have some flexibility on the free movement of people. The problem is that you've, you're, we're now heading into a conservative leadership contest where Boris Johnson uh, is likely to go up against uh, Theresa May, who's the Home Secretary. Theresa May campaigned for Remain, but she uh, has a history of being a hardliner on immigration. So Johnson could find himself outflanked on the right 
from her, uh, by her, on immigration. And so the incoming government could find itself uh, being uh, chosen on a mandate to be very tough on immigration. And that could make things more difficult. At the same time, uh, as you mentioned, the Labour Party is in convulsions. That was, in a way, going to happen anyway, because structurally there was uh, a fundamental problem in that Jeremy Corbyn, the leader, has the support of the, or had the support at least of the overwhelming majority of ordinary party members, but was opposed by the overwhelming majority of MPs. And they were always going to move against him. This has been uh, brought forward by the, uh, the referendum, by their perception that he didn't put his weight in the referendum campaign, and also by the prospect of an early election. If uh, you know, as soon as the uh, the new uh, prime minister is uh, is chosen, and so they're all worried. The MPs are worried about uh, their own futures, and so they've chosen this moment to move against him. Uh, Labour also is worried about uh, what the referendum told them about their relationship with some of their voters. Two-thirds of Labour Party supporters, or the people who voted Labour last year, backed Remain. But one-third uh, voted for Leave, and those were mostly in uh, industrial uh, or formerly industrial heartlands, a lot of them in the north of England, uh, plenty of them in Wales as well. And so there's an element of the party that's very worried about how they get these people back. Uh, they're, they're concerned that what they might see is something like what happened in Scotland after the Scottish independence referendum, where a lot of Labour supporters uh, went against the party line by voting in favour of independence. And then once they got into the habit of voting against their party, they stopped voting for their party, and so they transferred over to the SNP. What Labour is worried about is that they will lose some of those voters to UKIP. But at the same time, they're in a spot because... As I said, two-thirds of their supporters voted for Remain. And among those, younger voters and voters from ethnic minorities voted overwhelmingly for Remain. And those are both very important constituencies for Labour. So Labour needs to find some way of reconnecting with uh, some of its traditional industrial working class base without alienating other elements of its coalition. And elements which indeed might be supportive of Corbyn, where... The, in the north of England, that there would be a perhaps hostility to, to Corbyn. Um, I think it's also very interesting, and we'll come back to this in relation to the Irish position, that there is it does seem to be an explicit recognition that you don't get access to the single market without uh, agreeing to some form of uh, free movement of labour. That That's quite clear now from uh, many uh, Leave uh, supporters. That is clear, but at the same time, uh, there is in the uh, European Economic Area Agreement, there, is, uh, there are specific safeguard measures, so that it's the equivalent of what David Cameron was looking for initially, which is this emergency break on immigration, that if, uh, you know, if, if one of your commitments to the European single market, like the free movement of labor, is causing unusual pressures societally or economically, you can uh, suspend them temporarily. So, in other words, there is a precedent within existing arrangements that the European Union has with countries like uh, Norway, Liechtenstein and Iceland. They're obviously very different countries from the United Kingdom. But nonetheless, this, uh, you know, I think the principle of free movement is not absolute necessarily. And it's not beyond uh, the capacity of the negotiators, if they want to, to negotiate some kind of arrangement whereby Britain has a commitment to the free movement of people, but it may not be an absolute one. You're listening to the Irish Times. Thanks for listening to the programme. Remember, if you like this podcast and want to support it, it's easy to do so. Just subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher.
Now, in the Financial Times today, uh, columnist Gideon Rackman uh, suggests that Brexit isn't still isn't going to happen and that there will probably be a second referendum. Uh, there has been quite a bit of discussion about the possibility of a second referendum. How do you see that argument? I think it's possible. I don't see it as being possible kind of uh, in the current context. But what, of course, can happen is that First of all, uh, if uh, the economic turbulence uh, continues in the way that it has over the last couple of days on the financial markets, and if that then uh, has a greater impact in terms of the real economy, you could find that the uh, level of buyer's remorse, which is a fairly low level at the moment, could become more uh, pronounced. And then also, during the course of the negotiations, it may be that it becomes clear that whatever Britain uh, is able to get outside the European Union is perhaps not worth the sacrifice. And so you could conceivably find that in a year or two that the atmosphere has changed, uh, the political environment has changed, and so people feel then that the question has changed. And rather in the same way as happened in Denmark and in Ireland when uh, we had a second referendum on the same treaty, that actually the, uh, you, know, you get certain concessions, which uh, and that combined with uh, a shift in the popular mood can make it acceptable to have a second referendum. At the moment, we're nowhere near that. And it would, again, be very politically difficult. And once again, uh, you know, not only do we have this conservative leadership contest coming up, but you're also going to have probably uh, a general election sometime either later this year or in the first half of next year. And there's no question but that both the Conservatives and the Labour Party are concerned about uh, UKIP, which has come second in a lot of constituencies uh, last year. And so they will be, you know, there will be pressure not to resile too much from the commitment to leave the European Union. So I think as things stand now, I don't see a prospect of a second referendum, but that could change uh, as circumstances and as the, as the political mood changes. Now, Paul, of course, the questions have been, uh, of Brexit has been complicated by Scotland voting uh, to remain and the assertion uh, that by Nicola Sturgeon that the Scott Assembly might uh, have a right to veto uh, the uh, decision to, to depart. Yes, um, that's legally very contentious, of course. Uh, it is not altogether outlandish, uh, um, the way that the devolution settlement is, is written. Um, uh, in the same way, she talks about the material circumstances changing uh, um, uh, so that a referendum would be justified, another second referendum would be justified, and that is legally contentious, you know, vis-a-vis -vis London, because who can call it? Um, so that's, I mean, an immediate effect of the uh, result was to open up the, uh, the question of the United Kingdom, which is you know, directly associated with the, the question of the European Union. Uh, there's also a very interesting speculation developing uh, about whether there could be some kind of halfway house uh, for the Scots uh, while going with the UK out, but actually still having some access uh, to EU policies uh, within. Um, and, and that's speculative, but it's, a, it's an interesting one. And uh, this, uh, Sturgeon has to be very careful uh, uh, before she assumes that the uh, re decision to leave will in fact shift sufficient numbers to give her the likely majority. And it's not altogether clear that that's the case. I want to turn now to the particular challenge for Ireland and its diplomacy. Uh, there are a number of, of particular concerns of trade, migration and the, the effect on the peace process. 
Ruan, does the government have a strategy and what does, role does it see for itself in the negotiations? Well, the government's priorities now, like most uh, EU states at the moment, are primarily selfish. The question is, what's the impact on us and how do we uh, work to mitigate or, or, or reduce that, that impact? Impact. What's the strategy? Well, unlike the French and the, the European socialists and others uh, who want the UK to invoke Article 50 as soon as possible, the Irish government is in favour of giving London uh, more time, um, allowing the dust to settle uh, before the activation of Article 50 formally starts the clock ticking on the withdrawal process. And not just for the sake of it, it wants to use that time to get Dublin's view uh, across, to get a sense of its room for manoeuvre in the upcoming negotiations, and just to see how, how the land lies. The Irish government, as you said, has a lot of concerns, ranging from concerns about migration and energy to the loss of an important ally around the European table. But there are two issues, I think, that dominate all, all, all others for Dublin. Um, one is the border with Northern Ireland, the Northern Ireland peace process in general, and the other is the, the web of economic ties between Ireland and, and the UK. On the north, the big fear is that the imposition of the border, the border controls returning, would have a damaging impact on north-south ties, on community relations, uh, and on the um, still somewhat fragile northern political institutions. In the days after the referendum result, Irish ministers and senior officials, uh, they've been working the phones, they've been speaking to party leaders in Belfast, uh, the Northern Ireland office and other players. And the message has very much been, let's sit tight, don't do anything or say anything rash. Let's wait until the initial shock of the result dies down and see where we stand. So soothing noises on the north has been one uh, prong of the early strategy. Another has been to make sure that uh, other European capitals are aware of Ireland's unique position in all of this. Um, so, for example, conference calls have been taking place daily with the ambassadors in, in various offices around Europe, uh, various embassies around Europe. Um, Irish officials have been stressing the concerns about potential implications for the North, uh, for trade across the Irish Sea, for the common travel area and so on. As for uh, an overarching strategy, I think it's probably too early for that to take shape. Um, the government prepared what officials here call a contingency framework, where they asked every, gov every, every government department to come forward and say, well, what are the issues under your remit that might be affected by, by Brexit? But it's more a series of questions than answers, and officials are keen to stress that this isn't a contingency plan, because how can you plan for something, uh, for a Brexit, when you don't know what Brexit is, when you don't know quite what it's going to, to look like? Um, at the moment, the range of possibilities run from I suppose something that resembles very much the status quo, something like the uh, European Economic Community, the Norway model as we've referred to it, to a complete disengagement uh, by the UK from the European Union. I think un until it's clearer what direction the negotiations are going in, Ireland won't be able to put together a comprehensive strategy. Uh, but it, it probably is true to say that if, if Brexit is going to happen, uh, a pr the preferred formula for Ireland would be something closer to the Norwegian model because it it would kill several birds with one stone, so to speak, uh, in, in, in terms of the border between north and south, in terms of trade between Britain and Ireland. That's true. And, and it's, it's a, the template is already there, so you don't have to... Uh, you don't have to invent a new a new arrangement. I mean, for Dublin, the best case scenario is the wake up and it's all about dream scenario, where some way is found to avoid this happening at all, as you've discussed, a second referendum or a changed changed political dynamic, maybe after a general election in the UK. But if we if we assume that none of those things are going to happen, I think 
yes, the EEA option, the Norway model, would be the ideal. And in particular, it would allow Dublin to uh, maintain uh, or, or to, to succeed in, in retaining its, its, three, its three goals, winning on its three goals. So first, um, a, a bilateral deal or an EU deal of some sort that allows the border to remain invisible, um, for the UK to remain within the single market and for that not to for the post-Brexit scenario not to jeopardise uh, trade across the Irish Sea, uh, and thirdly, the retention of the common travel area or something resembling the common travel area, which would allow people to travel freely between Ireland and Britain. And of course, what we presumably don't want is, is to have to embark on a special bilateral deal uh, involving Ireland and Britain, uh, which would be separate from the rest of our European partners, because that would involve enormous complications with our EU relationship. Yeah, and I think if you had a Norway-type model, that, that wouldn't need to happen. Um, if you didn't, one senior official told me at the weekend that there would be no alternative but a, a special deal, given the complications, the particular unique situation Ireland faces regards the border in particular. Um, but I think that would have to be negotiated, not purely on a bilateral basis, but as part of whatever deal emerged between, uh, between the UK and the EU. Um, but certainly it could become very complex if you're trying to come up with a whole new set of arrangements um, uh, that take into account the particular circumstances Ireland is in. Suzanne, do you, do you sense that there is a sense of sympathy uh, uh, with the particular challenge Ireland faces in the Commission and in, in the Council? Well, I think there is an awareness, particularly of the border issue. It's got a lot of international media attention. And even here in Brussels, I've been asked about it constantly by journalists and officials from other countries. People are aware of that specific issue. But there are a couple of, of warning signs, really. I mean, Jean-Claude Juncker, in his address to the European Parliament today on Tuesday, has said that he has warned his 27 remaining commissioners not to engage in any informal negotiations with Britain before Article 50 is invoked. And the message clearly here is that EU member states are not uh, permitted, if you like, to, to go about their business bilaterally. Now, there is an exception... And that includes in Ireland. Well, it does. Inter and, and there's two distinctions. Obviously, the common travel area is one issue, and that there is going to be negotiations, obviously, between London and Dublin. But when it comes to trade, trade is an EU competence. Ireland and other countries have given away, if you like, uh, their... Um, you know, their responsibility for trade uh, to the EU. So it's very hard to see how, um, how any country, including Ireland, can negotiate any kind of a trade agreement with Britain bilaterally. It would pretty much have to be um, with the EU. Uh, so from that point of view, Ireland will be sitting around with the other countries trying to protect its own national interests in terms of its exports, for example, to Britain, where the French, for example, would be looking at the wine exports or, or Germany with, with Volkswagen or et cetera, et cetera. So you can see that there's going to be all sorts of, of different uh, priorities vying for attention there. Yes, in saying that, um, there is a recognition of, of the North, but I think that's very much seen as a separate issue that will be um, resolved between London and Dublin. Yes, with, with some input from Brussels, but actually the trade negotiations will be very much EU and Brussels-based. Now, finally, Ruan, how long is all this going to take? Well, um, the treaties state that once you activate Article 50 and the process begins, the, the exit negotiations take two years. Um, but uh, I spoke to officials at the weekend in Dublin who said we could this could soak up every bit of oxygen within government, within the Department of Foreign Affairs in the next seven to ten years. Uh, Dennis, is there a similar perspective in London? Yes, but again, I think it depends on, uh, on how the thing works. Because 
I think it's going to happen in two stages. One is uh, the exit negotiations, which are uh, governed by Article 50, and that's a maximum of two years unless it's uh, unanimously extended by the uh, EU partners. And then there's the business of whatever the trade deal is. Now, obviously, if they go for an off-the-peg solution, like the Norway one we were talking about, that's pretty straightforward. Uh, if they go for something else, then it really becomes very complicated because, and that can go on for years and years and years, because they then, uh, the United Kingdom then has to start doing essentially bilateral trade deals with all of the various, uh, you know, with all kinds of people, both outside the European Union, and then also just doing certain arrangements, not so much trade deals, but certain bilateral arrangements with various different EU member states. So it becomes much, much more complicated, and that period of uncertainty is extended much further. I think that the political class in Britain uh, would like to see this done in a speedy and orderly fashion once they've got their uh, political act together. But then the political class in Britain has just got a very bloody nose, and so it's feeling uh, a little bit lacking in its usual confidence and, uh, with which it normally goes about its business. And Suzanne, does anybody in Brussels believe it can be done in two years? Well, I think the, the definite message from Brussels is that it will, no negotiations will start before the invocation of Article 50. And then, yes, it can be... I mean, people people are forgetting this, that it can be extended uh, by agreement of all member states, the two-year period. Um, but what, one thing to note as well is where, where Ireland is going to position itself when these negotiations start... On Tuesday, for example, the European Parliament uh, put forward a resolution calling for the swift implementation of Article 50. And Fine Gael's four MEPs abstained from that. And that's quite interesting. Are we going to see uh, the Irish interest here trying to strike this balance we're just speaking about, about keeping the Irish and British relationship um, to the forefront while still not neglecting our European duties? Um, So if that's a sign of things to come, it's going to be a very tricky balance for MEPs, for the Commissioner and for the Irish diplomats here to, to, uh, to ride both horses, as it were, and to ensure that the Irish voice is heard without alienating our European partners. Thank you very much, all of you. Thanks to Paul Gillespie, Dennis Staunton, Ruan McCormick and Suzanne Lynch, and to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and producer Declan Conlon. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts.